I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Maggie Harrison of Lillian, and also one of the co-owners of Antica Terra in Oregon. Hello, how are you? It's nice to be here. Thanks. You grew up in Illinois. I did. Growing up in the Midwest is really nice because everyone is incredibly earnest, and everyone's very serious about the work that they do, and um, it's pretty funny. There's a strong sense of sarcasm, so as a place of origin, it's a great place to be. I couldn't live there anymore. Uh, I find the earnestness actually a little trying. And also, I don't think that weather is fit for human beings. But being from there and being able to call that my home is actually pretty great. I was in a congregation that was humanistic Judaism, which means that we didn't study the Torah except for as a symbolic story. It was all about a person's potential, right? That we as human beings have the potential to just do good work out in the world, whether there's a law about it or a rule about it or a dogma. It just meant that within your being, you had the ability to do good work. And so, you know, we sang a lot of Cat Stevens and Barry Manilow. It's a real small little sect of being a Jew. What were you like as a kid? I liked arts and crafts. And uh, I ran around. I played field hockey. I liked shin guards. I have synesthesia and I'm still synesthetic. You know, what they say is that most kids are when they're born and then there's nothing to reinforce it. And so it actually diminishes over time. And so I didn't realize until I was much older, I just thought everyone had a color for everything that was in their life until somebody told me that wasn't true. So how does it manifest for you? For me, every single sound, every word, every thought, every idea, every letter, every number, every day of the week, all have a distinct color that's been the same color. It's constant. And it, it mostly has to do with the sound of the word. And so it, it is tied most directly to the letters that are in the word. So even if I don't know how to spell something, then it, it just sort of floats up with what the sound in the word is. So even if I don't know if it's a P, H, or an F, then it'll go to sort of the most dominant vowel. All things are colored. It seems to play a little bit into your winemaking in terms of how you describe wines. 
For sure. I mean, I think it plays into how I describe everything, right? Music and and I don't mean I don't mean in some weird like I'm so tapped in. It's just it's the way I order my life, right? If I thought about when am I going to talk to you, I knew it was on the red day. It just orders everything in my life. Everything rises and falls on color. As you got out of the Midwest, where did you end up? After I lived in Chicago, I went to university in upstate New York. And then after university, I started traveling a little bit. Um, I had worked for President Carter when I was still in university. I got to do a project with him for a year. I have a degree in peace and conflict resolution and another degree in international relations, neither of which I use at all. But at the time, when I was working in conflict resolution, I got to do this work with President Carter. And so he offered me a job right when I got out of school at the Carter Center in Atlanta. But as part of that work, um, we agreed that I would take this fellowship in Denmark to go to a certain kind of school that was there that doesn't really exist in the United States. And once I got to Europe, I couldn't stop traveling. I really loved being there. I really saw that the people that I was meeting who were my age, who were European, all had so much more life experience than I did, right? I mean, they had all all traveled the world. They went to school to study, right? They went to school because they wanted to be a marine biologist and they actually studied instead of, you know, drinking pitchers of beer and dropping acid. And um, all of a sudden I felt like things were going much too fast and I was about to start a career and I wasn't, you know, I was going to have my first car and my first apartment and a dog and a bunch of things that seemed really permanent. And um, and I wanted it to slow down. I, w- I wanted it just to expand. All of a sudden I saw sort of the immensities that were possible and, uh, and I wanted to see more. And so um, I deferred the position at the Carter Center and then just started traveling. And so I would go to Chicago, work in a restaurant for a year because it was the easiest way to make a bunch of money and pocket a bunch of tips. And then at the end of a year, I would have, you know, ten dollars or $12,000 and I would buy a one-way ticket and a bunch of inoculations and a new tent and then I would go someplace. And so I spent a year in Europe again and then a year in South America and then a year in Africa and the whole time that I was gone, I just kept telling everyone I was a conflict resolution. Everyone I met, I told them, where, where are you from, Chicago? What do you do? I'm a conflict resolution specialist. I mean, that sounds like you're trying to help the world. If you say you're in conflict resolution, people are probably like, cool. Oh, I was really into it until really um, what I finally had to figure out is I just kept going further and further away from it. I mean, if I paid attention, by the time I was six years into traveling and working in a restaurant, if I paid attention to what I was doing instead of what I was saying, I was a really long way from Atlanta, right? Like I wasn't heading back there. And when I had to really look at what was driving me away or why I was so reluctant to take that step, it was that this is going to sound terrible. I really realized I wasn't that interested in peace, right? Like I'm still, I'm really good at conflict resolution. If you and your friend are having a conflict, I can come in and solve it. And I can get you guys both happy in half a day. Depends on how complicated it is. Five minutes, 30 minutes, half a day. But one of you was still being a jerk. And I had a really hard time with platitudes, right? Just getting everything to a higher place and making everyone feel better when somebody didn't ever just admit their own garbage, just say, I treated you really poorly. And so um, I like justice better than, I mean, I want peace, but um, I can't really work in a role where there's more acquiescence than there is truth. So, 
when I had to think about if I was not going to move to Atlanta and I wasn't going to take this job and I was going to have to call the Carter Center and tell them I was never showing up, I had to really think, well, what, I mean, I, I was a waitress, right? I was working in these restaurants and pocketing tips and heading out with a backpack and that's not a life, you know, that's fun for a little while, but what was I really going to do? And when I thought about it, the only thing that was really interesting to me was wine. I had been working in these restaurants in Chicago and um, they'd really educationally based wine programs, right? We would taste 20 wines every Tuesday. We sat down and used this sort of guild tasting method. And I was learning a lot. It's just like anyone, right? Anyone when you're learning about wine, it's exponential and there's a burgeoning truth and a, a burgeoning exploration. And I loved it. And so when all of a sudden everything that I had built my life on, kind of at all of age, whatever, 20 something, was sort of when it fell out from under me and I realized that's not where I was headed, the only clear path that rose to fill the void was um, I just, I wanted to know more about wine and I didn't want to sell more of it or drink more of it. I mean, I do both. Um, I have a really curious nature. And so I wanted to learn how to make it. And so I just set about trying to find a job with anyone who would have me and then ended up in a weird show of tenacity and just really great luck getting a job being the assistant winemaker at a winery in California. And they taught me everything, everything that I know about making wine. But kind of going back a little bit, your mom had done like cooking classes in your home. Oh, yeah. My mom's a cooking teacher and um, has about 150 students a month come to her, right? And it's mostly suburban housewives. They're mostly women and they're mostly middle age-ish. They're mostly parents. And um, they come to my parents' house in Barrington. They have a massive kitchen just for this. And she cooks a five-course meal and teaches them how to make all the recipes. And my dad was an ophthalmologist. Um, well, still is, but not practicing. And uh, he collected wine, but much in the way um, a lot of people start collecting wine. There was some first growth Bordeaux and there was some Amarone and there were some sort of iconic Napa brands from the 90s and 80s. There was no Burgundy, right? There are a few things from the Rhone. And so um, my first exposure to wine was for sure in my house. And I got to learn the first things that I learned But then there was this sort of cracking open of everything once I worked in restaurants when I was a little bit older. And how did your parents feel about that? Like, how did they feel about that developmental curve? My parents have never been more proud of me than when I was working in a restaurant. I have the sweetest, most eccentric, most unbelievable parents. But, you know, they kind of didn't understand when I was working with President Carter. They weren't super excited about conflict resolution work. Any fellowship, any job, any award, like, they they were nice. They were supportive. But they were also the parents who constantly asked, are you sure you don't just want to be an artist? You're really good at drawing. Don't I mean, and that's not a thing parents do. They don't say, don't you want to take the path of less money because we think that you really love it. And so um, I don't, think most of my life they ever saw me work hard. I didn't work hard, ever. I would get away with as much as I was allowed to get away with. And so they saw a whole childhood of me, you know, needing to be accountable. And when nobody held me accountable, I would get away with anything. Um, And when I stepped into a restaurant, there's total accountability, right? You're surrounded by a tribe all the time, and there's a real pace to what needs to get done in a day. And so I loved it. I loved it and didn't know that that was in me, that sort of work ethic and that drive and that unstoppability. Um, I didn't really see it until 
I got into restaurants. And so I think that they were really surprised to see somebody who had that amount of drive and tenacity who grew up in their home when I didn't exhibit any of that for sort of the whole of my childhood. And you had siblings or? Yeah, I have a sister. She's a filmmaker in LA. How do you see yourself in relation to her personality-wise? We're a really good team. I don't like, I can't really imagine. It's why I have two kids. I can't really imagine my life without her. She's the funniest. She tells the best stories. She might also be the most annoying person in my life. I think she's clearly delusional and clearly brilliant at the same time. And so if we were more alike alike, we probably wouldn't like each other as much. But I'm so devoted to her because I think that she is a full-time magic maker. And the part where you're apparently very good at dealing with difficult personalities, where do you think that that came from? Well, I'm not in my own life. I mean, I can do it, right? It's a tool. I don't know. I think it's a skill set you have that's pretty developed. I mean, my family was not um, absent of difficult people, right? Like, it's a band of crazies. There's a, there's a whole basket of difficult. And so I think everyone learns things from their family, right? Like their place of origin that they carry with them. And some people, you know, it ends up being baggage and, and sandbags on a hot air balloon that weigh things down. And some things you just get to learn and use as tools. And so how did you end up in Ventura? So, well, can we just tell the short version? No, because like half the people listening to this will be like, what? She did what? For how long? That's oh, amazing. God. Okay, but do you promise we get to get beyond this story? Like, yeah, we get to I don't want to be that person eventually. that's like, oh, I want you to talk about somebody else's winery again for your whole life. But I mean, everyone's okay. going to want to know. Yeah. And so once I realized when I was halfway through my trip in Africa that I wanted to learn how to make wine. I came back to Chicago, started working in a restaurant again, and I just asked everyone that I had worked with, all the sommeliers I'd worked with, all the distributors I knew, could anyone help me get a job anywhere? I just wanted to work in a winery, right? I would sweep the floors. I would prune the rose at the end of the vine row. I would pour in a tasting room. I didn't care. Any, anyone that would have me. And so somebody that I worked with helped me get a job at Duckhorn. And they were incredibly benevolent because I was some dumb, dumb waitress in Chicago. And they said, sure, she can come if you believe in her. And we'll give her a job where she can work a third of the year in a vineyard and a third of the year in the winery and a third of the year in a tasting room. And then we can assess what she's best at and what she likes. And then we'll see if we can't give her a full-time job. And so I accepted it hungrily. I was so excited. I was moving to Napa. And then about a week later, said sister called me and um very breathlessly told me that she found me a job. And I said, oh, that's great. You know, I already have a job. What, what job? And she said, you know, is it a winery? And I said, great, Harry, what winery? And she said, I don't know the name. And I said, what? no, I already, I already have a job. I'm moving to Napa. Remember, I'm going to Duckhorn. You and I just talked. And, and she said, no, 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 this is really serious. This is super serious. And uh, you have to fax me your resume. And I said, Harry, I don't have a, re I'm a waitress, right? Like I don't, I don't, I'm a waitress with a degree in conflict resolution. I don't, I don't have a resume. And she said, no, you have to fax me a resume. And I said, well, where's the winery? And she told me it was in Ventura. And so this was the nineties, right? It was before the internet. And so I unfolded a giant map 
And I was looking all around Napa and Sonoma, Sonoma, Napa, Napa, Sonoma, trying to find Ventura because I had no idea where it was. And um, I couldn't find it anywhere. And so finally I looked at the little key of cities and uh, found, you know, Ventura A26. And, you know, I looked right A. And then my finger went all the way down the map. I said, no, come on. I'm not moving to Ventura. That's stupid. There's no wine there. And so I told her that was really nice for her to find me a job at a winery she didn't know the name of, but that I was fine. Um, but she is. I mean, I guess tenacity runs in our family in some way. And so she kept calling me and kept talking me and all the time, calling, 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 calling. I need your resume. I need you to fax me your resume. And so finally, I was going on a trip and some friends had come over and we were drinking wine and my sister called again and it was, it was late at night. And so we all sat down and wrote together truly the dumbest resume. And you've seen resumes come across, like this actually wins. This was the dumbest resume with the dumbest cover letter that I know somebody still has in their file cabinet. Dumbest. It was addressed to no one, right? To whom it may concern. And then at one point in the letter, because I didn't even know who I was talking to and I didn't care, I said, that's why I would like to work at a winery like yours, committed to making quality wine. I mean, nothing. I had nothing. Somebody who was with me, a friend of mine, said, well, look, they're never going to believe that they should give you a job at a winery because you've never been anywhere near a winery. So you should say that you just want to learn how to make wine because you're interested in sales because that seems realistic. And so you can say you want to learn the trade from the earth up. It really says in the letter from the earth up, which is like, the. I mean, it makes me gag. I can't even believe I, I the whole thing. Terrible. So I fax it off at two o'clock in the morning. And again, it was the 90s. So my sister has like a thermal print fax machine. And so it comes out like a shiny version of the Torah. And I go on a trip and I get back, I don't know, 10 days later. And I talked to my sister and she said, hey, by the way, I handed off your resume and I found out and I thought resume. And I, I really didn't remember what was going on at all. And I said, oh yeah, right. And she said, I found out the name of the winery. And I said, oh great, Harry, what is it? And she said, you know, it's called the other hand. And I just put my head down on the table and I said, oh, Harry, please, 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 please tell me you don't mean Sinequinon. She said, that's it. Do you know it? And this was the year 1998. And so the first Sinequinon wines had just been released, right? Like it was, it was big news in Chicago and I was working in restaurants and you know, it, was a, it was a big deal. And so I put my head down on the table and I said, yes, I know it. And we got off the phone and I was morose, right? Like, I, like there was no way I was going to get that job. And that's a ridiculous opportunity to be able to work in a winery like that when you're a dumb, dumb waitress from Chicago. And so I just decided that I should follow through because that's one does. And so my sister had given me three phone numbers for Elaine and Manfred Crankle. And one was at La Brea Bakery and one was at their winery and one was at their house. And so I called the first number on the list and left a very polite message. Hi, this is Maggie. I just want to make sure that you receive my resume. I want to see if there's a time that we could set up for an interview. Let me know if you have any questions. Left my phone number. Thank you very much. And then I hung up and then there was a second phone number. So I thought, well, maybe that's the better place to reach them so I can just put myself out of my misery. So I called that number and left the same message. And then I called the third number and I left the same message. And then, you know, the sun set and the sun rose again. And I woke up the next morning and all the numbers were still on my bedside table. And so I just picked up the phone and I called all three again and left the exact same message. And then this happened. I mean, I can, it's a, 
terrible pattern. It really, like, I really can look back at all these things in half of my life where it looks just like this. I don't know what happens to me, but I, it didn't even occur to me to stop. And so for the next 30 days, I called once, twice, or three times a day and left the exact same message. And so finally, on day 30, Manfred picked up the phone and just said, okay, okay, okay. Um, and we had a phone conversation where I was too nervous to say anything of merit. And he explained to me that it was okay that I didn't have experience. He wasn't ever going to hire somebody, or at that moment, he wouldn't hire somebody that had experience. And I didn't have to know anything about making wine. He could teach me everything, but it was more about it being a perfect fit and a perfect partnership. And he had to trust somebody. And it was about attitude and a work ethic. And so we should meet. And I said, great, great. That sounds great. And he said, okay, well, Mondays are best for me. And I said, great. What time should I be there? And he said, what time should you be here when? And we were speaking on a Friday afternoon. I said, Monday. And he said, well, are you, I was in Chicago. He said, are you already going to be in California? And I said, no, I'm coming to meet you. And the whole thing was just, I mean, I don't know. I think there's a synapse that fires wrong in my, it's not, it's not even a reasonable way to act towards people. But um, I flew to California and I pulled up to their driveway and we had a long, long interview. And they took me on a whole tasting through the cellar, hour and a half of tasting through barrel after barrel after barrel after barrel. And I was so terrified that I couldn't speak. And so I said one word during my entire first three quarters of my interview. We had been tasting for maybe an hour and they pulled one sample of a barrel of rosé and put it in my glass and I tasted And I said, wow. And then they both recoiled because they didn't know that I was going to speak at all, apparently. Um, and that's all I could do. I just stood there shaking and I said, wow, once. And then we had a, a really truncated, super awkward interview where Elaine asked me if I was physically strong. And I said, well, I've, I carried a 55-pound back up Mount Kilimanjaro. And then Manfred asked me if I could drive a forklift. And Elaine blew it off and said, I can teach her how to drive the forklift tomorrow. And they were just tired. Right? Like, it was before the internet. They had no way to actually find someone. And I just, I was like LeBron James. I just got in front of them and put my hands in the air. And I wouldn't get out of the way. They had three-year-old twins, three older kids. He was running a giant successful bakery. It was their second year having Sinequinon on a huge amount of success and burgeoning growth. And, um, you know, they were busy. And so I got to have this job, which it doesn't happen in this country. I mean, it doesn't really happen so much anywhere, but there aren't really true apprenticeships in this country, right? I mean, if you want the best jobs, you have to have a degree and then an advanced degree and then five years experience and then a bunch of recommendations. And I truly was a moron. And I right, like, and I'd never even set foot in a tasting room, right? I was just a waitress who had been pouring wine and I got to be the assistant winemaker at, you know, whether you like the wines or not, one of the most exalted wineries in the world at that time and continuing today. And so, you know, I walked in completely green and then had a master of what they do teach me everything. It was a total gift. I I was the first employee there and I was the only employee for the first bunch of years that I was there. And so it was just Elaine and me and Manfred and that's how the the wine got made. And so if there was something that needed to be done from stuffing envelopes to racking wine to like, I got to do everything, which is a, a really rare position.
So I'll tell you one thing I love and one thing I don't love. So the thing I love is that you're like, wow, President of the United States, Jimmy Carter offers me a job and I'm just going to blow that off. But some boutique winery guy offers me a job and I freak out and fly to an interview the next day. I mean, that's amazing. You're like, yeah, whatever, Jimmy Carter. I'll keep you waiting for years as I travel around Denmark and Africa. But like some dude that owns a bakery, you're like, okay, I'll be there tomorrow. That's the part that I love. I love that you did that. The part that I don't love is where you call yourself a moron and a dum-dum because you're clearly very smart. So if you don't do that anymore during the interview, I'll feel more comfortable. You'll feel grateful. I think it was always there. I behaved like a dummy when I was younger. I mean, I remember when I turned 30, Manfred looked at me and he said, man, when I was 30, I was a lot older than you are. Like, I just think I behaved more like a child for more of my life than was really appropriate. I got it now. I'm He's also much Austrian, better now. though. I mean, it's different. Yeah, come there. on. The whole thing. So here's things that if I say, well, she worked for a bunch of years at Cinequano with Manfred and Lane, and then now she has a partnership in her own winery. Some through threads I see on that from an outsider's view, having never visited either winery, is specifically about the blending because he used to anonymize the lots, right? Put numbers on them, not yeah. say where they were from, and then go through and taste and be like, what does this want to join with? What does this want to become? And you do something very similar, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And I then, don't know how people make wine. I'm so sorry to interrupt No, you. go ahead. I don't know how people make wine any other way. I don't... Um, I'm going to let you finish. Go ahead. I mean, I would much rather hear about what the wine thing was like and then how you moved on that. I have two other points I'll bring later, but... I mean, it seems like a key thing that you do, because just to jump ahead in the story, you have these two Pinot Noirs, and you blend them on the expression of them. So yeah, how I mean, they express themselves. We blend every single thing that I make, right? Roussan, Syrah, Cabernet, Chardonnay, Rosé, Pinot Noir, everything. We blend all of the wines blind. And so what that means, for whatever we're working on, right, we take a sample from every single barrel of, say, Pinot Noir in the cellar. And so... You know, if we're talking about the 2016s that I just finished blending, that was 147 different bottles of wine on the table, numbered 1 through 147, and then we just move through them, right? And so on the first day, we just taste through each and every bottle and write notes on them, not knowing what anything is. And then over the next nine days, we do it in three-day blocks, eight hours a day. We just move through and put things together and take them apart and put them together like, like little meth addicts, right? Just over and over and over and over, put things together and take them apart until we find those harmonies that exist in the cellar, wherever they are, and find the place where the wines rise. And for me, it's the only way to find the most beautiful thing on the table in front of you. Because look, we're all essentialists, whether it's color or experience or whatever. We connect to things for a million different reasons, right? The ferment that tortured you and that threatened to stick, right? The pick that was supposed to happen at two o'clock in the morning, you didn't get the fruit till five in the afternoon. Your favorite block in the vineyard, the one that is a masal selection from the oldest vines, is planted at the top of the hill that barely produces any fruit. If you can see where those things are on the table in front of you, you're going to let them fall out of wine or rise into a bottle for reasons that have nothing to do with the most beautiful thing that was possible on the table in front of you. And so it would be really hard for me to get things into a bottle as an intellectual exercise, not because of a lack of intellect, and I won't say it anymore, but just because that's only interesting 
They're not beautiful, right? Like I think that that necessarily takes the process at least one step away from what was the most pleasurable thing on the table in front of you, if not 16 or 19 or 45 steps away from what pleasure looked like. And the problem with attention is once you pay attention, meaning once you can see what's in front of you, you are going to manifest changes in the process that take a different course, take a different path from what was the most beautiful thing that was possible. And in a bunch of different ways, right? If you see where your most expensive fruit is, you're not going to let that become declassified. I mean, I learned that from Elaine and Manfred, and that's not the way wines were blended when I first got there. And that's something that Elaine and Manfred realized over time, right? Like everyone just carries too much baggage into everything. If you're looking at a barrel head and it tells you what it is, you already, when you're tasting, have so many ideas about what that wine is. It's why I'm the most annoying person to taste with. When I go out on the road with my wines and I'll be sitting with a psalm and I'm sitting there and the wine's in their glass and the first thing you do is pick up the bottle and turn it around and read the back label. And I'm such a jerk about it, right? I'm uh, like, what are, you, what are you looking for? A wine buyer said to me recently, you know, I just want to know what to expect, right? I look at the alcohol and I look at the AVA. I'm like, but I mean, it's in your glass. First of all, I'm sitting right here and it's in your glass. So why do you need to know what to expect? Like, just taste it. And I think so much of that came from my upbringing in a winery, right? I mean, the reason their wines said California Saran. The reason my wines, you know, if I didn't have to put anything on a label, I wouldn't put anything, right? Like, I mean, that seems clear looking at your labeling choices. They're not the standard labeling choices. No, I mean, really, one day they won't have vintages and it, it won't save, right? Like, just taste it. And the proof is always in the glass. And so no matter what it says or where it's from or what I did or my mom did, like, the wine's in the glass. And so one of the things about Oregon is that it's such a young culture. I mean, we're in year, I'm going to get this wrong for sure, but I think we're in year 53, 53, 54, something like that. And so, look, I think we're just not there yet. And what I mean is there are definitely vineyards that should stand alone and portions of a top of a hill and one aspect and one orientation and this smaller place is better than this smaller place and this bigger place does something. And I, I know that this is a controversial thing to say, but I just feel like those things will only rise into a position of clarity if we do the work blind, right? So over my life's work, right, if I am continually taking notes, if I'm continually keeping things absolutely and maniacally separate at a really granular level. If I can show you in the cellar, here's the top of the hill versus the bottom of the hill. Here's the morning side of the vine versus the afternoon side of the vine. Here is my first pick from block one. Here's my second. Here's one A. Here's one B. Here's one C. Here's three, four, five. And I can keep those things and write notes about all those things, but then allow the most beautiful thing to rise in a blind blending session, that if there are patterns there, if there are vineyards that always perform well, if there are blends that always perform well, if there are activities that I, activities, that sounds so summer camp. If there are things that I do in the cellar in my winemaking that always give rise to greater wines, those things are going to get flushed out through hours and hours and hours of the blending table. And I think that our sort of race to delineate things based on an AVA and just on different lines that we draw is a little bit premature. And look, 
I think it's really natural to sort of want to ape an archetypal ideal, right? If you are, if it's 1972 in Oregon, nobody's paying attention to you anyway. In some way, you have to be able to codify the work that you're doing so that you can have a conversation, first of all, right? There is no other way to actually call attention or create a language for yourself that's going to make sense to wine drinkers out in the world. And so, of course, we're going to have AVAs and things and single vineyards and all of these things that we know from other places where we drink wines, those things are valid and show the difference between good, better, and best. I just think when we look at the other places in the world where we all drink wine, it took them 180 or 300 or 500 years to figure those things out. And I think we're in our first 100 years. We're all in the first and second generation of making wine in this state, and it's a really exciting place to be. And so part of the blending blind is my attempt to keep that process pure and so that, look, my kids are 8 and 10, and the 10-year-old can't even tie a shoe. So like the idea that they're going to make wine, right, and one's going to be a rocket scientist and the other one's going to be president, I don't know. But somebody's going to come after me and somebody's going to come after them and somebody's going to come after them. And so I think that one of the three greatest things that I can do for that generational work, whether it's in my family or somebody else's family, is to be really pure in the discovery process, right? In the exploration. It seems like the climate issue is also in the background of that these vintages are also changing from what they even were 20, 30, 40 years ago. And you're responding to that. And maybe if you have a set idea of what's good, that would actually make it harder to respond. I think it just makes it harder to be agile in anything, right? And one of the greatest things about making wine in Oregon is there's this huge, huge range of vintage variation, huge. And so look, this is not to disparage any place. I make wine both in California and in Oregon, but one of the greatest differences is that in Oregon, the difference between a cold year and a warm year and a late year and an earlier, wet and dry, right, is vast. It's a really big difference. And so if you have set for yourself a structure, I make low alcohol wines. My wines are always 50% whole cluster. I'm always going to operate in exactly this way. You have taken away your ability and your freedom to be able to always be responding to exactly what's happening in front of you. And while in a place with more stable environmental inputs, right, in a place that has a smaller band of variation for vintages or what the vintage conditions are, once you get that right, there is just perfecting and refining in a smaller circle. But here, when what's given to you on an annual basis is so wildly disparate from anything that came before, if you are not willing to just lean in and meet the fruit where it is and meet the season where it is, personally, I think that you have stolen from yourself the opportunity to just pare away all that's imperfect and find the one true expression. And I'm so sorry, I'm gonna say the word beauty a hundred times during this, a thousand. But the one pure expression of beauty that was of that year in front of you, no matter how hot or cold or wet or late or any of those other things. And I think that we see a real, I can't even call it a push towards the center, but I think that there are more and more people who feel a real need or a comfort or 
a clear communication in being able to say, I am, right? And then you can count on my wines always doing this. And whatever this is, you have to force the wines in that direction. And for me, especially because I didn't go to winemaking school and I worked for a winemaker who also didn't go to winemaking school. And so, you know, a little bit like the shags. It was like deaf people in a basement singing. And so I don't have a huge box of tricks. I don't really know what all the different options are. But when I look at sort of some of the things that people do to wines to try to make them fit their conception of what a great wine should be, it's not the nicest way to make wine. Like that way of making wine would never feel great to me. And so we end up sort of just meeting the vintage and meeting the fruit where it is so that we can follow the most natural course instead of trying to make those different inputs fit what I thought the wine should be. These days at Antiquaterra, you make a few different things, but one of the kind of dividing lines is between two particular Pinot Noirs. One is the Ceres and one is the Botanica, and they sort of express a different kind of fruit consistently across different vintages, although they're from different parcels. What happens is, right, the first thing that we do when we're at the blending table is we pull a composite of the entire vintage. So the first thing that we taste is all of the Pinot Noir in a composite. I work with 11 different barrel sizes. So we take the right amount from each barrel, so we make a perfect composite, and we taste it. And at least in the past hmm, four or five years, right, it's been good. It's been good enough. You could stop. It's it's good, and it's it's good enough. But what we found as we go over and over and over these wines and put things together and take them apart in all these different ways is that there is a certain sort of dovetailing, right? And it happened the very first year. In 2006, when I released the first Antiquaterra wine, I only wanted there to be one wine, right? I just came from a winery that there were a million different wines and each one had a different name and a different label and a different bottle. And, you know, it's the nice thing about Bordeaux or about Harlan, right? Like, have you ever had Mouton? Yes or no, right? It's not like, oh, I had the one with the bugs, but I didn't have the one with the octopus. And so I tried to make one wine. But at that very first year at the blending table, what I found was that there was a certain expression on one end of the range of flavor expression and textural expression that was on the table in front of me, that if I added too many barrels into the composite I was trying to make, it really quickly sort of obfuscated some of the finer detail or sort of higher aspects. And I don't mean high qualitatively, but sort of um, the more ethereal qualities that existed in the wine that I was working on. But I couldn't declassify those wines or those barrels because they were some of the best things in the cellar. And so in that very first year, I ended up making two wines. But I thought that it was just an anomaly, right? It was 2006 and it was a really warm vintage. And so I thought, oh, these barrels are behaving like this because it's warm and because of all these things. I'll never make this wine again. Um, but then in 2007, this incredibly cold and rainy vintage, I had the exact same thing on the table in front of me. And so what I've really started to understand over time is there is this dovetailing that happens. And so if you look at all the wines on the table, there's always going to be, especially because we're working across, you know, a pretty wide swath of the valley, there's going to be this huge rain, right? There's a whole sort of atlas of expression on the table in front of us. And it goes from A to B, whatever the A to B in that year is. And if you put them all together, you can get someplace good. But there is sort of more tannins and more dry extract and more concentration on one end that sort of slots into or sort of dovetails into some of the details that exist at the other end of the range. 
and they sort of ground out. And so you end up with a wine that while maybe delicious, just doesn't have, and this is, this is something I learned at the blending table with, with again, one of my mentors who helps me blend, that really the final marker for a great wine, like one that goes from good or good and delicious or even extraordinary, it is clarity. And um, there is just a much higher level of clarity that is attainable if you allow those things to unzip and find two wines. And so for Saris and Botanica, all we're doing is turning our attention towards the two ends of the range of the expression, right? So in my mind, one has an orientation facing left and one has an orientation facing right with no prerequisite, right? So it's not like I have to make an equal amount of each one or this vineyard goes here and this vineyard goes there or I have to make both every year. It's just where is the most exciting wine on the table in front of us and allowing those things to rise into bottles. Do you find that your synesthesia comes through in your blending choices? More in ordering and keeping track of. And so it's not like I always want to find the turquoise wine, right? It's more that as I'm going through and I'm tasting one through 147, things tend to group themselves by expression into colors. And it's really fleeting. I mean, anyone who's listening who has synesthesia will know, right? Like it's not a conscious thing at all. It all just sort of happens at a very subconscious, although very visual level, and then goes away again. But I do, right? Like when I look at sort of my codes, right? Because all I have is a list of numbers and then tasting notes and then a code next to it is I can see, right? Like all the things that I called plus one, right, are all sort of turquoise-ish, or, and then these things. And so it's apparent, but not directional, meaning I'm not trying to find the turquoise wine, but I can always see where the turquoise group is on the table. In 2013, you had a situation where you put together some barrels, and you liked it, and then you realized they were all from the same vineyard. You did a separate bottling, and did that make you look at single vineyards differently? Or did that make you look at the potential of a vineyard differently? Or No. Did- Even then, I'd already been making single vineyard Chardonnay since 2011. Well, the first Chardonnay I made was a total gift. And so that was a single vineyard Chardonnay. And it's not about being for a single vineyard or against a single vineyard. It's just that if a single vineyard is going to be in a bottle by itself, it should be because it was the most beautiful thing that was possible. And so anytime those things happen, it's so exciting to see. I feel like cleaning the fresco, right? Like I feel like we're getting closer to clarity and what's sort of possible in this place or possible in my hands in this place, right? Like I can't speak to the potentiality of this place as a whole, but like, you know, I feel like in our little, you know, garbage can of a winery that our story is getting clearer, sort of chip by chip or brushstroke by brushstroke. But so when I was at the blending table with Lillian Syrah a couple of months ago, all I ever want to make is one Syrah. The whole goal really is to just have one Syrah. It says Lillian on it, done. And we came out with five. And Two of them are single vineyards. One of them is Grenache, because I work with a little tiny bit of Grenache, but it typically finds its way into the Syrah because that's the highest possible answer for it. But I made two single vineyard wines, um, uh, Grenache, and then we make some Syrah by snipping the grapes off of the cluster, berry by berry with the pedicel still attached. And so we've been doing this since 2014. In 14 and 15, that barrel found its way into the Syrah, right? The single Syrah that we made. 
in 16, the highest possible use for that barrel was for it to stand alone. And so while I sat down at the blending table to find one wine, we found five. And so it's more about being open to finding the nicest thing on the table in front of you and not saying it's only going to be one or I'm always making two or it can never be a single vineyard or I hope I find a single vineyard. It's just I hope I find something I love, right? Honestly, it always sounds super weak, but that's all it is, right? Like you just want to see something that is deeply delicious and hopefully complex and symmetrical and beautiful, right? And clear. From what I understand of Manfred and Elaine and that process, they taste and they say, what does this want to be? Although I've never visited and I've never met either person. That's exactly right from when I was there. I would never speak to the way they make wine out because I don't know. I haven't been there in a long time. But I can tell you that for the eight or nine years that I was there, that's exactly how the wines were made. And do you feel that that describes what you're doing too? Yeah. I mean, I think it describes the way that we work everywhere, right? And so it's the same thing when you're in a vineyard. I mean, when we're pruning in the vineyard, it's not, I want this block to be two tons the acre, or we're going to go one cluster on the shoot, two on this, one on this, two on this, or, right? Every single vine is a puzzle. And so you look at the vine in front of you and you say, what's the nicest thing I can do for this vine right now? And then you do it and then you move on to the next thing. And those, they're very seldom going to be identical answers, right? It's not going to be the same clusters per shoot. It's not that always you're going to take the lower cluster, right? There are all different things. There's a whole ecosystem on one vine and a whole architecture, right? To pay attention to and make decisions based on exactly what's in front of you. And that's what I learned, right? I mean, the thing that I learned, the thing that I took away from that apprenticeship, right? Working under Elena Manfred is you keep your head down, right? You never, ever, ever lift your head. All you're ever looking is at the tiny thing that's in front of you, no matter what it is, right? If you're pruning a vine, if you're at the blending table, if you're selecting a cork, if you are doing a pump over, right? You're racking. You just say, what's the nicest thing I can do in this moment? And then you do it, right? With fairly maniacal rigor until it's done. And oftentimes those choices, right, are the most inconvenient, the most tiring, the most expensive, right? Like just things that you know you don't have to do because so many wines in the world are made without that work happening in that way. But once you've decided and you ask yourself why, right? What's the nice thing I can do in this moment? And then you have to answer the question, well, why do I think that? Then you just do it and you allow those little tiny details and those beads to string together. And so the reality is you don't know where you're headed ever, right? You don't really know what that wine wants to be. You just know if you're always doing, oh my God, I'm going to say it again. If you're always doing the most beautiful work exactly where you are, then all of those beads will string together and you'll end up in a really fine place. Um, and so when we look at some of those things that we do, right, like blending wines this way, I think it's pretty rare. You would know much, much, much more than I do. And I don't think that there is something qualitative in rarity, right? Like it could be really stupid and also really rare, but um, it definitely takes longer, right? It takes longer to find the wines. And so maybe it takes us eight times longer to find the wines, right? It doesn't make the wines eight times better, but maybe it makes it one eighth of a percent better. And better is just better. If you're always making sure that 
from where you're sitting, right? Like with your eyes and your palate and your heart that you're finding the best thing you could have done. Best is just best. So what's an example of a time where you said, this is what this wants and I'm going to give it to it. And then it reinforced that with what you felt later was a win. And what's an example where you didn't do that and then you felt like, I regret that. What are concrete expressions of that philosophy in action? Well, I'm going to take the second half first. And so, for example, one year when we were at the blending table, right, we finished blending. And when we're done at the blending table, all I have is a big piece of paper in front of me. And then it has the name of each of the wines at the top of the paper. And then under each name of the wine, there's just a long list of numbers, right? So let's say Botanica, number 72, number 16, number 44, number 317, whatever. And then next to that, another number that says the percentage of that barrel or the number of liters from that barrel that are going to move into bottle, right? And so it's only when we're done that we, whatever, raise the curtain, that we have the reveal and we match up what all those numbers were with what was in those barrels. And so that's the moment that I find out, you know, what the alcohol is, what the whole cluster inclusion was, what the new oak contribution is, where the vineyards are, if something's a blend or a single vineyard or what percentage of what. And so one year... We had the reveal, and I looked at Botanica, and I was like, look at that, right? So many of the best barrels in the cellar that made it into this bottling are from this vineyard, right, in this particular cooperage. And I was like, great, I found it, right? Like, we found the pattern. Now I know that that vineyard does best in this kind of barrel. And so the next year, we, when I was selecting barrels for those fermenters from that vineyard when they were going to the press, I threw a ton of that single cooperage at it, right? And then I ended up declassifying all the barrels because what worked in what was a warm and opulent vintage was exactly opposite of what would have worked. Or really, if I'd just been looking at what was the best choice in front of me, if I looked at the wine I'd made and then thought about what might be the nicest barrel for it, I would have never chosen that cooper. But because I thought that I had it and that I found the pattern, I missed the opportunity to actually make something good just by making something that I thought that I had seen before. And on the other end, I mean, I'm the worst, right? Like, I I don't think I can call anything I've done yet a win. And I don't mean that, right? Like, I'm inspired by that, right? I'm super aspirational. I hope that all the best wines that I'm ever going to make are still so far out ahead of me. For me, I think the hard part would be, I know... I think I know how to blend for right now. I just don't know how to blend for five, six, ten years from now in a bottle. I don't know how to blend for an evolution. So how do you approach that topic? I'm the first winemaker in my family, right? And I'm the first or second person to work with any of these vineyards with which I work. I mean it, right? Like some of the vineyards, there are a lot of people working, but we're still in the first or second generation of people working even in those sites. And so... We can learn things from your interviews from other winemakers in other regions where they've been making wine since 1310. And there is a certain body of universal or universally accepted knowledge about the kinds of things that help wine age well, right? Like when we both drink Barolo from 1961, right? Like we know the things that were built in that wine that allow it to do well later in its life. And so you can try to have an eye towards making sure those things are in existence. But I don't think even in families where they've been making wine since the 1300s, there is this clarity of, 
I know that if I do this now, it's going to do this and then this and then this and the evolution looks like that. I think there's more empirical evidence. There's more of a track record. But I think that all you can do is sort of take the things that we know from winemakers that came before us and what we know about the wines we drink and what performs well at 20 and 30 and 40 years of age and make sure that you are making wine in a way that promotes all of those pieces. You make sure that all of the building blocks that should be in a well-formed wine exist, but otherwise, I don't think we can know. You know, I'm at the very edge of my empirical evidence. I know that the 2006 Antiquaterra is better now than it was on release. It would be terrible tomorrow, right? Like, this is as far as I know with my winemaking. And so in some ways, again, I don't mean to pass the buck, but whoever comes next and whoever comes after them, you know, will have it easy in a bunch of ways, but also it'll be kind of theirs to say whether the decisions I made based on the things that I know from everyone that came before me and all the wines that I drink, if I got it right or not, I, I can't really tell. So sometimes when I talk to people, they tell me, you know, wine ages on acidity. And other times people tell me wine ages on concentration of fruit. Like I've met both of those people. And I they, think they're both wrong, right? Like I think some wine ages on acidity. I don't know why we allow ourselves to become so reductive, right? Like reductive in certain places where actual immensity exists and a wild complexity exists. And the opportunity to like dive into that complexity is so exciting. And yet we have these weird platitudes and and sort of wrote explanation, not you, but right, like where we say these things, like it's law and it's clearly not. If it was law, then two people wouldn't say two separate things, right? If it was actually knowable, there'd be no dispute. And so I think it has much more to do with symmetry than it does with one particular thing. And I think that both of us, I mean, if somebody gave us a pad of paper right now and said, hey, whether you agree with it or not, can you name five wines that age well because they're concentration of fruit? Sure. How about acidity? Sure. How about tannins? Sure. How about, right, like... Sure. Yeah. Yes. All of those things exist. And so I think, I mean, personally, if you gave me that pad of paper, I could do it fast. And so I just think when we know that there is that dimensionality and that multifacetedness, um, I think it's just reductionist to sort of try to force it into one tiny box. So you put up a lot of samples for blending. And I think where the majority of winemakers would deal with that many or a lot of samples would be on press fractions. And so how do you approach pressing and different cuts? We use all of the press fractions. We go from the fermenter warm first into barrel. And so we don't have holding tanks or settling tanks. And so each fermenter, when I decide that it's ready to go to the press, we lift up the entire fermenter and then pull a siphon. So put a little hose in, pull a siphon and drop the juice down into barrels and fill each barrel until it's about two thirds full. And then we go to the press, and that fermenter will go into the press. And then from the press, I fill little 10-liter Swiss buckets, and I line up the barrels in front of me and two lines in front of the press, and then just move in a figure eight and give each of the barrels its own unique dose of the wine that's coming out of the press. And so there's a, there's a bunch, I know. So first of all, I think that my winemaking is reliant upon a really high level of solids. And so this actually takes it much further back in the winemaking because what that means is that 
we sort really, 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 really slowly. And that seems a really simple thing to say, except for it's just not always logistically possible, right? If you make more wine than I do, and you're in a valley based on one single variety, all the fruit's going to ripen and it's going to be ready to pick in a fairly short window. And so if you need to bring in 50 tons in a day, which is not even a large winery, right? There just aren't a hundred hours in the day to be able to do that work on the sorting table. And so you end up having to counteract things that are already in the fermenter, right? Oftentimes in the Willamette Valley, we'll see botrytis on Pinot Noir. And so if those things slip into the fermenter, of course you have to settle wines and you have to take things off the gross leaves. You have to be really careful with the press wine because you have to take care that you are not extracting or not exposing the wine or not including the wine that has been extracted from things that are less than. Um, if you make sure that you don't allow less than into the fermenter in the first place, you just get to lean in and meet the fermentation where it is. And so then by the same token, we don't use a press program. You don't use a preset. It doesn't have a set cycle. Exactly. We just use it on, on manual and then we don't rotate the press. But what I do is I just press, and as long as there is juice dripping out of the press and it tastes good, then I'll just park it there for as long as there's juice. And as soon as I stop getting juice to that fraction, right, I will release the pressure and let the grape shift a little and then start pressing again. And so oftentimes with red wine, we're in the press for three to six hours just because it takes that long. And there is no, you know, sometimes I get to a pretty low um, level of pressure. And then, you know, as I increase to the next stage, it gets all of a sudden really medicinal or bitter or it dries out. And sometimes we're pressing much, much harder or at a higher pressure than I would have thought, or that people typically say like, oh, I never press beyond X number, um, where I find that the fruit expresses itself in all different ways all throughout the press cycle and different fruit and different moments responds to completely different programs, right? Or just It'll end up getting pressed harder or softer or in a long time in the press. Some things will give a lot of juice all of a sudden at sort of a medium amount of pressure, but then won't give any more juice again for the next couple of hours. Like anything else that we do, it's just about being present. It's a constant reaction to exactly what's happening in front of you. And so, you know, right, because you've pressed wine before, is that you're not getting the same amount. So if I'm pressing at 0.2 bar, I might get 17 buckets out of the press and I have 10 barrels to fill. So I go around and all of them get one and seven of them get one. And then I increase the pressure and maybe I get nine buckets from that one. And so in this way, as I keep moving around in this figure eight and moving with a bucket, instead of homogenite, right? The difference would be if we took all the wine from the press, put it into a holding tank, right? And then barrel down from the tank is that then you would have say 20 barrels that all have the exact same wine in them. Because I appreciate the diversity in the cellar, we do it this way so I have more ingredients to work with. So when we sit down the blending table later, instead of having whole 40-barrel blocks or 20-barrel lots to then move these big pieces around, um, it becomes much more symphonic in character because there are just more instruments to play. All of that plays into the general approach, like not having a preset idea of how we're going to do this and having more ingredients to play with later to put into the orchestra. Those are right. kind of the fundamental ideas. Right? It would be bad at this point if all of a sudden I said something that didn't fall in, right? Like that's <laughs> Well, I mean, there is one, which is that you always do long lease contact, right? Oh. As a default. So it's the same with anything. If I 
found a wine that I thought was ready to bottle sooner. And they don't all, I mean, I don't know what counts as long, first of all. And so I don't really know if I do or not, but I can say all we're ever doing is tasting and deciding. And so maybe I just have a long lease palette. When I first started making Pinot Noir, I always bottled the Pinot before the next vintage. So it was always, you know, 10 or 11 months. Now I rarely find things, you know, and I'm tasting all the time and that would be great. It's a great, great moment to get things out of barrels so that you can just fill them again. But oftentimes things are still really tightly coiled and just very sort of backwards and primary at that moment. In fact, oftentimes I find it to be one of the more awkward moments in the evolution of the wine. And so we don't have fixed bottling dates every year. And it's not like we always do this in April and then we always do that in December. It's based on tasting. But I do, I mean, I do think time on these is a kind of magical thing. I feel like I feel it. Sylvain Pataille was like, Lee's contact is the umbilical cord. And I understand that to be true without understanding why. Yeah. Well put. That's exactly right. So it seems to me like you started with Syrah and Rhone and then moved to Pinot and Chardonnay. I feel like you came to Pinot from a Syrah vantage point. Yes, for sure. I came from Syrah first and started making Syrah first when I started making my own wine. But the thing that we sometimes, or I don't know who the we is, right? When I worked at Sinequinon, we also made Willamette Valley Pinot Noir and Chardonnay and Roussan and Viognier and all these things. And so while it is known as a Syrah and Grenache producer, um, I'd been working with Oregon Pinot Noir since the day that I walked in the door at Sinequinon. And the, the reality is, I'm really bad at charting course, right? Like I don't like I don't actually know where I'm headed. And so it wasn't that I started with Syrah and then said I can't wait until I finally get to make Pinot Noir, or I'm sick of Syrah and now I want to make Pinot Noir. It is that I fell in love with the vineyard. That vineyard could have been planted to Timorasso, and now I'd be making Timorasso. Okay, <laughs> but that being said, you're expanding the vineyard, and have you planted Timorasso? I mean, like you could have planted other stuff, right? Yeah, we are planting little bits of other things, not because I think that Pinot Noir is boring or because I want to be avant-garde or because I want to be the first person to plant Willamette Valley, Godet, right? Like none of those things. I just think that all of us are supposed to be doing that work as pioneers so that we know, right? Like maybe it is a better Timorasso region than it is a Pinot Noir region. I'm going to get kicked out of the Willamette Valley for saying that. But it's just for knowing, right? So that if one day I hand this to my daughter, she just has more of the story than I knew when I got there. So many of the things that we plant will be failures for sure, but it, I don't even look at it that way. It's just, it's just discovery. It's just to always be learning. You have the Antica Terra property, and I've at least heard you say in other contexts that it's pretty distinctive. And so how would you sum up those singularities to that place? Oh, it's a ridiculous site. And I again, I, it's not qualitative. That site's not better than any place else. It's just a really wild site. It's this little south-facing bench on the backside of the Amity Hills. And so the Ola Amity Hills are typically known for shallower. One of the things they're known for is shallower soils than many of the other sub-AVAs. But even there, you're really usually looking at somewhere... Oh, I shouldn't say this because somebody's going to write you a comment and tell you I got it wrong. But whatever. Somewhere from like... 35 to 85 inches before you get to bedrock, right? Before you, you dig down and get to solid parent rock. And 
either through some unknown erosion that I never saw before I got there or just the way it was formed geologically, the whole bench has no soil. So we're a zero to 16 inches just on top of this very, very, very compressed marine material that is prehistoric seabed. So it's when the whole of Oregon was under the Pacific Ocean 40 million years ago. And so the vineyard is planted on this solid sheet of unfriable rock that is all sown with bright white marine fossils. It's not better than anything else. It just gives rise to a certain particular expression that is very constant. And so in this place, right, in the Willamette Valley, where we have this huge range of vintage variegation, and in a single site, you can see the expression of the wine that you're able to make from that piece of ground move with great fluidity from sort of one end of the spectrum to the other. It is because you only have one lifetime to try to learn your lessons from these pieces of land. It is a blessing and a privilege to work with a piece of land that expresses itself with such a clear voice. And then in some ways doesn't show great typicity for what we know about this place so far, right? Like it doesn't always feel like the Yola Amity Hills and it doesn't always feel like Willamette Valley. And, you know, it doesn't always speak Pinot Noir. It has this sort of crazy non-fruit intensity and these Barolo-like tannins, it doesn't do a lot of things that we oftentimes expect of Pinot Noir, but it always does that. Should I understand it correctly that it's devigorating soils? Yeah, I mean, there are no soils. And and really, you know, I didn't plant the vineyards, planted um, in the late 80s by a couple of guys from New York, and they didn't rip either. They didn't prepare the soils, they didn't rip. And so, you know, when I got there, the vineyard was in decline in many ways. And it was one of the hardest things about farming it or figuring out how to farm it is that it was so sensitive. If it got too warm, all the leaves would turn yellow and defoliate. If it got too cold, all the leaves would turn yellow and defoliate. If I looked at it cross-eyed, right, like it would start to fail. And that's because so many of the roots were actually, you know, in zero to 16 inches, right? At the, at the most, they had sort of 16 inches. And there was a pretty big majority of roots that were just snaking around the surface. And it was only some roots that found their way through fissures and fractures in this bedrock, right, that allowed these vines to survive for so long. But because the temperature changes in, right, the top of the soil, most dramatically, they were really sensitive. And so I don't like to rip soil ever, right? Like I don't, I don't believe in it, but I went through with a spike. And the second year that I was there, once I realized what was happening, you know, we ripped one stripe down the middle of every row. And so in the short term, it was, I'm brutal. I mean, we brutalized the vein. It was unbelievably brutalistic. And they suffered because we cut so many of the roots, but then they finally had space to gain purchase and actually find their way down into the rock and below the rock. And so, you know, because they were under stress for so long, they are stunted. I can still put my thumb and forefinger around the trunk of every single vine in the vineyard, even though the oldest vines, and I know it's not old from any other perspective, but the oldest vines were planted in 1989. And I can still, you know, it's a, it's a tiny circle of a, of a trunk. Oftentimes the shoots don't reach the top catch wire and they produce these really tiny little clusters you know, grape clusters, we weigh clusters from every single vineyard, every vintage. And so we know that in the Willamette Valley, you know, somewhere between 100 and 118 grams per cluster, typically on a Pinot Noir cluster. Over the last 12 years in Ticatera, we've averaged 67 grams per cluster. So when you make the Barolo comparison, do you think that that's because you're getting more skins to juice? 
Yeah, I think that's exactly right. When you ripped, did you add lime or carbon or anything? No, we didn't. Mostly because I didn't know what I was looking for. When you don't know what to amend to, it's hard to amend correctly. And so I'm not opposed to lime or carbon or, right, like I didn't have enough, a deep enough relationship with that piece of land when I was ripping to be able to think I knew what amendments should look like. You know, when I got here, there were only six planted acres in Ticatera. And um, that does not really a business make <laughs> in the Willamette Valley. And also I was grandfathered into a bunch of different contracts. And I'm not from here. And so even though I fell in love with that vineyard and I wanted part of my life's work to be knowing that place and finding the wine that was possible in that place, I also wanted to throw my arms around just a much, just cast a much wider net and really try to understand what the intrinsic aesthetic merit of this place was as a whole, as opposed to just sort of moving here from California and diving into this one site um, and sort of ignoring what was happening culturally outside of the deer fence of my own vineyard. What are the observations then? Coming from California to here, what do you see? The first thing that's really palpable when you get here is just the culture of winemakers in this community. And I thought it was a total farce. I mean, really, I saw a level of just cooperation and community that is so different. Well, it is very, very, very much different from where I came from. So, I mean, look, when I first got here, I wasn't working with fruit from the Shea Vineyard yet, but I knew Dick Shea because at Snackwanon, we worked with Shea Fruit. And so every year, Dick Shea has a dinner where he invites everyone who works with his fruit Everyone brings barrel samples. We taste them all blind and we go through. And I was invited, even though I didn't have barrel samples to bring, just to welcome me into the community. And I remember we were tasting through these flights. We would taste through a flight of four. And then Dick would say, does anyone want to claim, you know, number 12? And some winemakers say they thought it was theirs. Everyone was always wrong. But we got to one wine and it was the most flawed wine I've ever had in a glass in front of me. And I thought, oh my, I know exactly how this happened, right? That poor winemaker is busy and running to a million different vineyards and sales meetings and partner call and, and everything else. And, you know, called the assistant winemaker and said, hey, I got to go to the shade dinner. Can you pull me a sample from these three lots? And I got to go to this dinner. I'll pick them up on my way. And I was so humiliated <laughs> for this person. And then it came time for the reveal. And Dick said, does anyone want to claim, you know, wine 17? And the winemaker said, yeah, so you guys, that's mine. And then we spent the whole rest of the dinner talking about that wine and what happened and what the fruit looked like when it came in and all the different tests that have been done and all the different things that the winemaker tried. And I sat there struck down. I mean, in the central coast of California, there's no way somebody would bring that wine to a tasting. They would sooner pour Jaye into a bottle and say, that was mine, than to openly say, I totally screwed this up. And can you guys help me understand what to do next time? And I really, I mean, I'm not cynical. I, I just think I have a pretty good bullshit meter. And so I thought, oh, it's really interesting, right? Like that was amazing to see. And that's not going to last very long, right? Because as soon as big money comes into the valley or as soon as somebody really knocks it out of the park or as soon as some wineries start to fail, right? As soon as there is some pressure in some direction or another on this community, that's going to fall away. And all of those things have happened, right? Like people have knocked it out of the park. People have failed. Big players have come in, lots of respectable and famous French producers have come in. And that thing, that level of 
combinatorial creativity and community and collaboration that exists here, I've never seen it before. It's real and it's cultural and it exists long before I got here. It's a pretty incredible thing that they built. Maggie Harrison looks for situations that are stressful, either for her own employment or for (laughs) her vines. And she values community. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you so much. Maggie Harrison of Antica Terra and Lillian. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. This episode was made possible by the Willamette Valley Wineries Association. That's the same association that organizes the annual Willamette, the Pinot Noir Auction, Oregon Pinot Camp, and Pinot in the City. For more information, please visit WillametteWines.com. That's Willamette with two L's, two E's, and two T's, Wines.com. If you're curious, there's an excellent article about Elaine and Manfred Krankel on the website rhdrexel.com. That's R-H-D-R-E-X-E-L dot com. And I'd recommend that article to you if you'd like to know more about sine qua non. Reading it helped me to develop questions for this episode. You know, now at 12 years in, the people who have been loyal to the wines and have been collecting the wines and have been representing the wines in their restaurants, understand that the through thread is not one of identicality, right? Or a certain profile, but one of intention 